John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 127 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. All right, we're headed down the home stretch of this wild and crazy election season, less than two weeks from when voting ends, although that does not mean we will know uh, who is actually won or what the final outcome will be. Many people uh, starting to believe that it will take uh, many days before we have any kind of final result. That doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that when all is said and done, it's going to be a super close election. It's partially because of the nature of the mail-in balloting and the way we're counting and the chaos that could ensue, and of course, Trump being very, very hesitant to accept any sort of loss. So there's all sorts of different possible scenarios. It is still possible that it might be enough of a blowout on the East Coast that we know on election night on Tuesday, November 3rd, uh, that uh, Trump has in fact lost. The difference between that scenario and a scenario that takes uh, several days is not going to be that much difference. It might only be one or two percentage points with regard to Trump's level of support. But that's really the way I see this thing going down. We're on the razor's edge of it either being very close and Trump in all likelihood still losing, or it could all just collapse on top of him and it could be a blowout, uh, especially from an Electoral College perspective, if he were to lose all the close states. And there's a strong argument to be made in both directions. 
those that are in the camp of this is breaking away from Trump and that he will end up getting blown out by losing all the close states after having won them in 2016 would point to the last few days and say that his behavior is certainly consistent with that. Correct. Because let's be clear, Donald Trump has uh, effectively over the last couple of days just said, fuck it. Correct. Just fuck it. Fuck it. I don't care anymore. Uh, I'm going to let it all hang out. I do not care where this uh, ends up uh, going or whether or not this is going to have any positive or negative ramifications. I mean, he has really decided to go balls to the wall. And, uh, you know, there are those, of course, in his in his fan base that really love this. I love the poorly educated. And they are so energized that they believe that this is a sign of strength. This is a sign that he has the momentum, that uh, he's finally, you know, letting it all out. And he's he's going to, you know, use uh, both barrels, all guns ablaze. I am not necessarily in that camp. I mean, it is entertaining. And boy, uh, tomorrow uh, it should be very entertaining as far as the debates are concerned. Boy, that escalated quickly. Uh, because now there's nothing to lose. In Trump's mindset, it is clear he has decided that either he's going to lose or that this is his only shot at victory or some combination thereof. And when you have someone who is desperate with nothing to lose and who already doesn't really care about the natural conventions and standards, uh, look out. Uh, Things could get really crazy, even by the standards of this year. I mean, it is possible, and we'll get to it momentarily, that what we see tomorrow night in the uh, final debate, the second debate of three that were scheduled, that that could be even crazier than the first debate, which was obviously a shit show. And uh, what I find particularly interesting about this this new strategy, which if you like Trump, you look at it as a strength. If you hate him, you look at it as a sign of desperation and weakness is uh, and this has happened before. I mean, if you're, if you're a fan of the podcast, you've probably noticed a pattern here where even though I'm not rooting for Trump, I have been ahead of the curve in predicting where he was going with his strategy. And a lot of what he is now doing, and I think this is too little too late, dovetails almost exactly with what I have said. One, are his problems from a political standpoint, and two, how he could theoretically fix them. I would say that the most significant observation that I have made about the Trump campaign is that in the post-COVID era, they can't pick a proper narrative, the one that makes sense one that can resonate with voters that aren't already in his base. Correct. And the reason for this is his ego. His ego will not allow him to tell a story that makes sense and creates a difference between him and Joe Biden that might appeal to a voter not already within his cult. And the reason for that is that Trump and he and he still can't get past this. So he's trying. He really is trying. You see him struggling mightily. He still can't do it because of his ego. But you can you he cannot get past this inherent contradiction with regard to COVID that he wants to believe that both he saved two million plus lives by locking down the country early on, but also that lockdowns are bad and that Joe Biden is going to destroy the country by locking us down once he becomes president. 
Those two things are inherently contradictory, at least to the average person. And it just doesn't pass the smell test. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. And I can understand that. Because on the one hand, if you're saying that government intervention was so powerful, so impactful, and so in such a positive direction that you saved two million lives, then why the hell would Joe Biden not do the same thing if he thought it was going to also save anywhere close to that many lives? Now, the problem is Trump didn't actually save two million lives. Two million lives plus were never going to be lost in this year due to coronavirus. That was never going to happen. I never believed it was going to happen when that was projected at the start. And I explained in great detail why and why these projections are always inherently on the very, very negative side, because that's the way they do things. Any any small uh, alteration or mistake in the extrapolation projections is going to be exaggerated. And they always want to be on the pessimistic side because the worst thing that could possibly happen is that they underestimate. And you have the, the, the particular political uh, influences here when all these people are very anti-Trump. They're all progressives. They all very liberal. And whether it was conscious or subconscious, they all knew this was very bad for Trump. So I knew the projections were always going to be on the inaccurate negative side, and they continue to be. Even to this day, after all this data from, from which to extrapolate, the, 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 this, the projections are still uh, going to be way on the pe- pessimistic side. But here, here's the thing. We know now for sure that there was never going to be over 2 million deaths because it hasn't happened anywhere in the entire world. There has been nothing close to the death rate that would be required for there to have been well over 2 million deaths in America in one year due to coronavirus. No place in the entire world has come close to that, not even Sweden, which did not have a governmental lockdown. They didn't. They did obviously had uh, lifestyle restrictions, but there was no governmental dictated massive lockdown. And there still isn't in Sweden. And now they're back to basically normal life. And people still aren't dying of the coronavirus in Sweden. They're getting the virus. Some people are. And the media has tried to make as much as they possibly can about that. But for the last three months, Sweden has been averaging one death a day via coronavirus. The media won't tell you about that. But that's a fact for three months, for three months with normal life. So we now know that that whole scenario was bullshit. That was never going to happen. But Trump can't let go of that because I believe he wants to believe that he didn't destroy the economy over nothing and destroy his reelection effort over nothing. I shouldn't say nothing, but over a situation that didn't require that, that didn't help anything. He wants to believe that the sacrifice created some benefit. And the benefit was, well, I saved two million lives. Plus, he thinks that that's a narrative that will vindicate his response. It's not going to work. Because the news media has eviscerated his response. I believe mostly unfairly. But that's the reality. The average swing voter does not believe that Donald Trump handled coronavirus properly and does not believe that he gets credit for two million lives saved. So Trump is stuck. Trump is stuck with that narrative and he can't reverse it. I had urged him about a month or so ago 
uh, back when the Democratic convention happened and Biden said that, you know, no miracles were coming. And there hasn't been a miracle in the data, but I think that's mostly a technical issue that I did not anticipate more than an actual virus circumstance, although there are areas that have not had major spikes in the virus, especially in the upper Midwest, which are experiencing natural spikes. But most of what we're seeing here is a massive increase in testing. People have no idea how much more the United States is testing than the rest of the world right now. And over a million tests a day. So when you get... 50 or 60,000 positive tests, mostly of younger people who are going to school and getting tested constantly. That sounds terrible, but it really isn't. And the media has already won that battle. They've already won the panic porn battle. And so there's nothing Trump can do about that. That narrative, that horse has already left the barn. But now, belatedly, He's trying to do exactly what I had suggested, which is to fight back against the Fauci's of the world and to try to build this idea that, wait a minute, the, if Biden is elected, we're going to shut down again like some European countries are doing. And this is going to cause further damage, not just to the economy, but medical damage and, and de- cultural damage and to no end. No positive end. I agree with all that. He's actually right, in my opinion, but it's too little. It's too late. He has no credibility on this. And I have to say, I have been amazed and and slightly uh, in awe almost, considering what a juvenile I believe Donald Trump to be, that up until this week, Donald Trump has been remarkably disciplined in not lashing out. I mean, there's been moments that he has lashed out, but the level of frustration that he must be experiencing, knowing deep down that he got duped by Dr. Fauci and that he destroyed the country or allowed the country to be destroyed largely because he got duped. He got duped by Fauci as far as how big a deal this was going to be, how much positive impact a lockdown would have. He gave up too much power to the states and he did not realize or maybe he did and was it just didn't realize the impact it would have. He gave way too much authority uh, of uh, Democratic governors over his own uh, reelection chances from a political standpoint. And let's be clear, those Democratic governors, whether it was conscious or subconscious, knew exactly what they were doing. Places in Pennsylvania and Michigan and obviously here in California, one of the most dramatic examples, that there was no way the economy could recover without those engines being fully turned on. And therefore, Trump would lose his most potent argument for reelection. So he made a lot of very naive mistakes. I frankly think that one of the biggest mistakes he made uh, from a political standpoint was once positive tests became the primary metric, the primary data point that the media used, it was over. It was over for him. It was over for the country at that point because the test is bullshit. The test doesn't tell you anything. This was supposed to be about hospitalizations. Correct. Remember that at the beginning? This was about flatten the curve to keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed. Well, That never happened, even in New York. Even Governor Cuomo has admitted that never happened. So they had to change the narrative. The narrative changed from keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed to we need to prevent every case of this humanly possible as if we have some control over it to begin with. 
once that transformation was made by the media and by Democratic governors, it was over. Trump was basically neutered at that moment. He was no longer president of the United States. And a lot of what we're seeing right now really feels like Trump has been transformed into a a right-wing radio talk show host with no actual authority over anything. And finally, the frustration that he has to have felt about this, plus the desperation over what's happening in the election, has overflowed. And so we're going to play a few of these clips from you just to give you a taste of what's been going on with Trump on this. This the, the floodgates really opened with the leaking of some audio of Trump attacking Fauci in a conference call with advisors. And what we're about to play is only a small portion, apparently, of this conversation. For some reason, and this comes from Fox News Channel, the, what I thought was the most interesting part about uh, this audio is not actually in this clip, but he references Fauci and others like him as idiots who have been wrong about everything and, and in a very dismissive fashion. But here, just to give you a sense of it, this, this audio got leaked. Now, it's interesting to note I think there's a pretty decent chance this was leaked by people that are in favor of Trump. And if you think about it, anyone who would have access to this audio would have to be very close to the inner circle. And it would be a limited number of people. So if you're going to leak this audio, you're really taking a big chance of pissing off Trump unless he wants this audio leaked. And that this might have been the excuse for Trump to finally publicly go full out Uh, and go up against uh, Fauci in a public way. And that's exactly what Trump did. After this leaked, he started to go out very publicly uh, and still in a somewhat muted fashion, but to attack Dr. Fauci, which I have been saying for a very long, for months, I have been saying that Fauci was a major, major problem uh, for Trump, not just politically, but because I also think that uh, Fauci or Fraudci, as I've been referring to him, has been wrong about everything. He's taken every possible position on everything that there is. He's a media whore. He's an attention whore. He loves the publicity. He's not going to say anything that goes against the major media narrative. And he's deeply invested in what I believe to be a false narrative about the virus. Deeply, deeply invested. And uh, Trump has been very slow to push back against Fauci. And let's be clear, he created Fauci. He gave Fauci the ability to become the face of his administration and to become a massive, just not media darling, but public darling, especially among the left. I mean, my gosh, the left views Fauci now as like the patron saint of bringing down Trump because and, and, and I think that has a massive impact of how the left views the virus itself. The left has been now openly rooting for the virus for months, I believe, again, I think mostly, I'd like to believe, mostly subconsciously because they see it as a weapon against Trump. Jane Fonda was one of the few prominent lefties to actually say this publicly where she said that the coronavirus was God's gift to the left. Some people, uh, it's not very subconscious, it's very conscious. Uh, But that's partially why Fauci is so popular. So here's a a small, short snippet of Trump uh, talking to advisors about uh, Fauci. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots, these, these people, these people that have gotten it wrong. Every time he goes on television, there's always a bomb, but there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. 
But Fauci's a disaster. I mean, this guy, if I listened to him, we'd have 500,000 deaths. Now, I don't even understand what that means. Again, Trump is trapped. It's like he's in this quicksand where he can't find a narrative that both makes sense and benefits him. Because the narrative he previously was latching on to in this quicksand was, I listened to Fauci and I saved two million lives. Now uh, he's claiming that somehow it would have cost half a million lives if he did. I, I don't I honestly don't even understand what he's talking about. I do not understand what he's talking about, but it is obvious. And this, to me, is very consistent with a campaign that knows it's in trouble that there is a level of desperation here, that they now know, okay, we need to push the the nuclear button on the virus. It is my opinion, you know, this is going to sound contradictory because I somewhat advised Trump to do this, uh, I think it's a mistake now because it's too late. It's too late to change the narrative. This had to have happened months ago, and it had to happen from a position of persuasion and education, not in lashing out in desperation in the last two weeks of a campaign where, frankly, a lot of people have already voted. Most vast majority have already made up their minds and very few people change their minds at any point in a campaign anymore, but especially not in the very last few days on new information, because most people understand that the information at the last minute is all bullshit. I mean, it's everyone's just throwing everything they possibly can against the wall. And the more you're throwing against the wall, the more desperate it looks. And, and all of this has the stench of desperation, in my view, from Trump's standpoint. Now, could it be effective? It will be effective, by the way, with a large part of Trump's base. There's no question. And the crowds show this. I mean, Trump's crowds, give him credit. His crowds in a coronavirus circumstance are amazing. They would be amazing without the coronavirus. But I actually have a theory that in a weird way, the coronavirus has helped Trump's crowds because it gives his most ardent base an opportunity to show the world how pissed off they are about the reaction to the coronavirus. Because by showing up to a public event where you're actually allowed to go and you're not legally required to socially distance and you're not legally required to wear a mask, you can show the world, if you're, if you're an ardent Trump supporter, how much bullshit you think this whole thing is. Conversely, the Trump people, the Trump fans, look at Biden not having any crowds and they're saying, aha, see, Biden has no enthusiasm. Biden is going to lose because look at Trump's crowds in comparison to Biden's crowds. But what they don't understand is that the virus which provokes them to come out in public to show the world they think this is bullshit has the exact opposite effect on Biden voters. Biden voters have no need to come out. They don't want to come out. They're afraid to come out. They, they're afraid of the virus. They're wearing their masks in their basements. Not necessarily literally, but certainly figuratively. They don't need to come out, but they're sure as hell going to vote, especially when they're allowed to vote via mail. I mean, the, the disparity in this election between in-person and mail-in voting is going to be more dramatic than even the gender gap. 
I mean, Trump voters, we're going to see all sorts of photos of people in, in red hats lined up to vote on Election Day. And it's going to look like, oh, my gosh, wow, Trump is doing amazing. Did you see these pictures of the Trump voters all lined up? Yeah, that's great. Except guess what? The Biden voters all voted two, two weeks ago by mail. Because that's because the virus is keeping them inside and they don't want to go out. They don't need to go out. And the main thing that's motivating them is hatred of Trump. Correct. Not not enthusiasm over Joe Biden. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. I've said that from the very beginning of the of the Trump phenomenon back in 2015. But I said, don't go this direction, my fellow Republicans, because you're going to create if this happens a negative turnout machine. And the 2018 election proved that. Trump wasn't even on the ballot. And look what happened. The Democratic turnout was enormous for an off-year election. When in recent years, Republicans had dominated off-year elections because they normally have the enthusiasm advantage. Well, I, I, I especially with all the mail-in balloting, this enthusiasm thing is being way, way, way overrated, way overrated. Uh, and it's, it's creating a, a, a remarkable, dramatic false sense of security among Trump fans. But it's back to Fauci for a second. So Trump goes after Fauci in this leaked audio. Then he does the same thing publicly, both on Twitter and in the rallies. And then he goes after Biden. And this, again, is something that I advised him to do. But again, it's too little too late and the execution isn't particularly good. Here uh, is Trump at a rally going after Biden for having said that he will listen to the scientists. Now, we went through this when this occurred just after the Democratic convention on this podcast, where I said that Biden is setting the stage for him to lock the country down to some extent once he becomes president in January of 2021, that he's going to act like it's March of 2020 rather than January of 2021. So here's a classic example of where I think Trump is actually correct on the issue, but because he has no credibility, because his timing is wrong, and because his execution sucked, this doesn't work. It's too late. And all anyone sees is that Trump is mocking Biden for listening to scientists, which not, does nothing but facilitate, further facilitate this narrative that Trump is anti-science. And sometimes he is, but not always. Some of his instincts on this have actually, in my view, been better than Fauci's. And I realize that that's uh, completely inappropriate to say publicly. Uh, you're not allowed to say that about Fauci. He said it again. But, you know, it was Fauci who said we need to be wearing goggles. Trump never said anything about wearing goggles, right? I mean, it was Fauci that flip-flopped on masks. I mean, and it was, it was Trump that listened to Fauci early on, whether he wants to admit it now or not, I don't know, because it seems to change with the wind. But, uh, you know, at least Trump now seems to have learned something. Fauci refuses to learn anything because he's invested in the idea that he's a super expert and super experts are infallible, which is why he had to lie about why he was against masks back in, in March. Correct. Uh, so I'll give Trump this. He, he seems to have learned. He's learned too little, too late. But here is Trump 
with basically being in the right church in the wrong pew too late on this issue of what will happen with regard to Biden listening to specifically Dr. Fauci once he becomes president. He's going to lock down. This guy wants to lock down. He'll listen to the scientists. If I listened totally to the scientists, we would right now have a country that would be in a massive depression instead of we're like a rocket ship. Take a look at the numbers. And that's despite the fact that we have like five or six of these Democrats keeping their states closed because they're trying to hurt us on November 3rd. But the numbers are so good anyway, they'd be even better. But New York should be open. Michigan now has to open because of the court case. North Carolina should be open. They should be open. You guys, you want to open? Yeah, you want to open. Pennsylvania has to open. I mean, you know, we have, we have, we have places, and sometimes they're open, but they're partially open. They're not open like they should be. Get the places open. Let's go. Let's go. But he'll surrender your country to the radical socialist left. You see that happening. Again, I agree with a large part of what Trump said there. Part of the problem is that's the right-wing radio talk show host talking who seemingly has no power over the situation. He's saying, open up, open up. Well, they're not listening. Now, I real, I'm, I'm a states' rights guy. I'm a federalist. I, I get that. But in this particular circumstance, <laughs> the, the states' rights stance has, has backfired dramatically because we now have a bunch of dictators who have no accountability to the people, all because of these emergency orders. And what he's referring there with regard to Michigan is that in Michigan, the state Supreme Court has has revoked the governor's powers. Now, she's not accepting that and is basically doing an end run loophole around that. And the same thing, by the way, happened in Pennsylvania, where a federal court shot down, but then that got reversed, shot down the Democratic governor's dictatorial, tyrannical powers there. Uh, and so a lot of Trump fans, and, and you know, I, my wife just asked me about this, and I, I was embarrassed to say I don't have a full understanding of why this is, but a, a lot of people are starting to ask, well, why hasn't Trump revoked the national emergency so that he would at least have some theoretical leverage on the state's to stop using emergency powers. And I don't have an answer to that. My only theory would be that it must give Trump some authority that he's afraid to give up. But it's really hard to make the argument that everyone should open up, there's no emergency, when there's still technically a federal emergency, to my understanding, that Trump himself has not rejected. Also, I go back to how his narrative doesn't make any sense. So, so... He's saying, once again, that if he had listened to everybody that, uh, you know, that this would have been far worse than it was. Well, which is it? Pick a lane, Donald Trump. He can't pick a lane largely because his ego won't let him. And it's too late. He's, He's trying to dramatically shift the narrative here with no credibility with which to work. And it just doesn't it doesn't work except for his base. The base loves this because finally somebody is fighting back. The base believes, and even though I hate Trump, I fully sympathize with this view. The base believes that the country and the future of America and who we are as a nation is on the line here. 
that if, if Trump loses and Biden has a Democratic majority in the Senate and the House, that it is over, that we are no longer going to be a free country. But that's a small percentage of the population. That's probably only 33% of the population. Trump needs at least 47% of the population to pull this off. There's no place to get the those swing voters because that's not a message that's going to appeal to the people that are still in the undecided category. In fact, I have a theory that I've had for a very long time, which I think the data backs up, that when it comes down to the final swing voters, the late deciders, what they decide on is which choice is going to make them feel better or smarter about themselves, which feels like the smart choice, which will make them think better of themselves. And this Trump as being anti-science narrative, which has absolutely held in the mainstream news media, is devastating to any of those swing voters going his direction at the last moment. Because it is without question that to an average voter, who, let's face it, is not very smart, who hasn't thought about these things in a, in, a, in a detailed, nuanced fashion. All they know is Trump's the anti-science guy, Biden's the science guy. And so they believe in science, and the smart people are telling them that Biden's the place to go. So they're not going to feel smart by voting for Trump. They're not. Now, there's going to be some people who might feel like, okay, wait a minute, I'm so damn scared of the left that I have to vote for Trump. There'll be some of that. And I wrote a column this week, which you can find at our Twitter page, which is at Individual One Pod, about one of the biggest mistakes Trump made politically was not taking advantage of California and the California insanity. I make, I think, a very strong argument that if Trump had decided to run against California and our crazy Governor King Gavin Newsom, if he had decided he's going to run against Gavin Newsom instead of Joe Biden and use Kamala Harris, the the Democratic vice presidential nominee, senator from California, as that nexus, that this would have been very effective, very effective in so many ways. The lockdown being the perfect example. I mean, California has actually done quite well, not because of the lockdown. I, I'm, I'm convinced that California did better than most states especially the large states, because we had this way before anybody even knew it was a thing. And so we got part of our virus done with before we started counting. I think that's part of this. I also think that our geography, which is vast and very diverse, helps other than in places like Los Angeles. Most of California is, is, is very rural. And so, therefore, we had some advantages with regard to the virus in that way that, like, for instance, in New York City did not have. So, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom, I, it's almost like I think Gavin Newsom tried to bait Trump into making him the face of the opposition, and Trump would not do it. And I've theorized before it's because Gavin Newsom, ex-wife, is the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr., and that maybe, you know, Trump has a soft spot for him. Newsom has has buttered up Trump in certain circumstances. So maybe he understands Trump's psychology. Maybe Trump views Newsom as part of his tribe because his ex-wife is his, his favorite son's girlfriend. I don't know. But 
Trump has really missed the boat on this issue of attacking California because saying that California could end up being the rest of the nation, I believe would have been very effective in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in North Carolina and maybe even in Arizona, places like that, that understand it's, in, it's intrinsic. It's, under, it's, very, it's very much in keeping with a narrative that, that already makes sense to them that uh, we don't want to be like California. Okay, they've gone crazy there. And I, I outline that argument in great, great detail. And it's, it's Trump fans ought to be pissed off at Trump for not taking advantage of uh, what uh, Gavin Newsom in California offered from a political perspective. Instead, instead of focusing on California, Trump is trying to focus on Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. You cannot be serious. So we're in the midst of the, the greatest alleged crisis in the modern history of the country. And Trump's key to victory is a laptop from Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. It's just flat out ridiculous. Really? This is your grand plan for victory. Now, I'm going to sound uh, contradictory here. I don't think it is. I think I'm just being nuanced. I, I, uh, I, I find it abhorrent how the news media has handled this issue of Hunter Biden's laptop, that they have proactively censored the story of what's on the laptop and what's its theoretical meaning. Uh, even Fox News Channel has been afraid to go full out with this because uh, Rudy Giuliani's fingerprints are all over this. Uh, there has been some speculation that maybe part of the emails found on the laptop under these very bizarre circumstances were created as part of a Russian uh, disinformation campaign. To be clear, and I'm always very fair, I believe that Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee who led the impeachment charge against Donald Trump, has been largely misquoted or misinterpreted in his statements that he gave to CNN, which appeared to make it sound like he believed that the laptop was, in fact, part of a Russian disinformation campaign. I don't think that's what he actually said. I think he was talking about the entire Ukrainian uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden conspiracy theory. And and I think he got he didn't do a good job of articulating it, but I I do believe he was misinterpreted there. The director of, of national intelligence has said that he does not believe that the laptop was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. So my view on this is I don't really give a shit what's on the goddamn laptop. We're way beyond that. But I also find it absolutely outrageous that major media companies and, and big tech are proactively censoring, not, not muting, not ignoring, censoring, even from the, the uh, Judiciary Committee. Uh, putting out the article on uh, that was originally in the New York Post on their official government website and Twitter proactively censoring that. I mean, that's that is as un-American as it gets. And so while I don't really care that much about the story, uh, I do think that Trump gets at least some traction on this because the left is so afraid, so terribly afraid of anything positive or, or I guess in this case, negative about Joe Biden uh, being disseminated widely that they've completely lost, lost their minds. And they're now 
literally willing to censor. We've seen it on the virus constantly where where facts are being censored. Legitimate opinions are being censored. Scott Atlas, the top advisor to the president, uh, a doctor who on the, the whole coronavirus issue, he got a tweet deleted by Twitter because he said masks don't work. What? Deleted by a top White House advisor on this. You cannot be serious. When, when I actually think he's right, and I think the science is going to prove that. The data already proves that. But we're in an Orwellian 1984 kind of world here. And so the left, in a, in a large part, has played right into Trump's hands on this whole Hunter Biden thing, which from a substantive standpoint, look, I, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't care. And it feels a lot like classic Trump projection to me. I mean, just, uh, just in the last 24 hours, there's a new story that Donald Trump Tax returns indicate that he had a bank account in China that was undisclosed previously. And, you know, who knows what that actually means. But I got to tell you, based upon Trump's M.O., where projection is is a, a huge part of the way he does everything. In other words, if he's got a weakness, he attacks someone else on that weakness. And here's a guy who, remember, 2016, I know China. I know China. Uh, he was constantly talking about how well he knows China, all because he leased uh, part of one of his buildings to the biggest bank in China, and that supposedly somehow gave him some great insight into China, and he knew how to deal with China, and he was going to tear up all the trade deals. Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> if only because of the virus, our relationship with uh, China has not worked out well for anybody. And there are enormous conflicts of interest that Trump has uh, with China, obviously, we talked for many months about his conflicts of interest with regard to Russia and the Trump-Moscow deal. And so Trump is 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 dirty as hell, as corrupt as hell. Uh, you know, the idea that he was, you know, perfect classic projection, drain the swamp when he, he is the swamp. He filled the swamp. He's as swampy as they get. And so, uh, you know, to me, the Hunter Biden issue, I don't think it's particularly effective. I don't think it's reaching whatever swing voters there are left, um, and and time is running out. But I'll tell you, the Trump fans are completely convinced, completely convinced that the Hunter Biden issue, much like Hillary's emails in 2016, are going to be the key to victory. Well, there's a big difference, big difference. First of all, Hunter Biden is not Joe Biden, although Joe Biden supposedly is connected with regard to some sort of money scheme uh, here. But uh, in 2016, the emails were about Hillary Clinton's handling of classified information. At least that was the allegation. And you had the FBI director come out and very dramatically in, in a press conference 10 days before the election say he was reopening, stupidly uh, and catastrophically, reopening the investigation into her. And as it turned out, just as I predicted at the time, it turned out to be nothing. But by the time he said it was nothing, it was too late. The momentum had gone in Trump's direction. And I believe that's why Trump ended up winning the 2016 election. That's what ended up tipping it in his direction. None of that's going to happen this time around. Now, in keeping with this theme of Trump just not giving a shit and just saying, fuck it, uh, with regard to the reporting on the whole Hunter Biden uh, uh, laptop situation, Trump really let it all out uh, in a way that for a president of the United States was both 
unprecedented and inappropriate, where he's calling Joe Biden a criminal and the media a bunch of criminals for not reporting it. And here's what it sounded like uh, on a uh, an airline or air, airport to tarmac uh, just a couple of days ago. And you know who's a criminal? You're a criminal for not reporting it. You are a criminal for not reporting it. Let me tell you something. Joe Biden is a criminal, and he's been a criminal for a long time. And you're a criminal in the media for not reporting it. Good luck, everybody. Have a good time. Have a good time. All right, so Joe Biden's a criminal, and the media is is all a bunch of criminals for not reporting it. Now, um, I would like the president of the United States to have a higher standard for calling someone a criminal than simply he doesn't like their media coverage. But this is this is a guy who just doesn't give a shit anymore. He's letting it all out. And part of why he might be letting it all out is he could at least theoretically uh, be expecting to lose. And he's trying to create as 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 positive a post-loss narrative for himself as possible. The election was rigged against me. The mail-in voting was rigged against me. The fake news media was rigged against me. They're all a bunch of criminals, and you can't believe your lying eyes. I would have won this election. Had it been fair, I would have won this election if not for the Chinese virus. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, and so this is just further indication that, that Trump really is just letting it all out. Again, is he letting it all out because he sees this as a legitimate path to victory or because he just doesn't give a shit anymore and he's trying to create a post-loss narrative? I'm not 100% sure, but I'm leaning in the direction of the latter rather than the former. Now, as far as what can happen between now and Election Day, tomorrow night's debate is one of the, the few events left that could even theoretically change anything. There was no second debate. Just as I told you there would not be a second debate for numerous reasons. There ended up not being a second debate. One, the first debate was a shit show. The second, Trump got the coronavirus. Third, Steve Scully, the moderator, got caught in a scandal, which Trump totally called, uh, where he lied about uh, an episode on Twitter where he was essentially colluding with Anthony Scaramucci about how to go after Trump. I mean, these are all things that would never happen on the other side. Uh, if anyone ever did anything like this, they would never be considered forever being part of a presidential debate. But when you're on the left, it's OK because, you know, you know, no harm, no foul. You just got caught. Sorry about that. Uh, and so Trump called that and I give him credit for that. He was dead right about what happened there. Well, the, the moderator of the third debate, uh, Kristen Welker, also has some issues. Uh, you know, she's from a Democratic family. She's been caught on video in the past, uh, you know, giving uh, Democrats heads up for questions that she was going to ask. I think, in fact, Hillary Clinton. Uh, I don't know that she's going to be as bad as as Chris Wallace, because Chris Wallace had the benefit of of uh, having the guys uh, of uh, Fox News Channel cred, even though he's actually a liberal. But I'm sure she's going to be very, very much on the side of Joe Biden, as everyone who has moderated these things, whether they be town halls or uh, debates, is going to be. That's just the nature of the mainstream news media. Well, here Trump is uh, going after her and setting up the narrative that if he does lose this last debate, that it's not uh, really his fault. The fact that Kristen Welker is, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool, radical-left Democrat or whatever she is. Okay. Okay, then ask, why are you defending her? Then ask her, why did she delete her account? Would you please have her put her account back? And you know what? It's not going to affect—I know you want to stick up. It's not going to affect me. I'm going to be there. 
But, you know, I told you about the last one, and I was right. And I told you about Savannah Guthrie, and I was right. And I'm telling you about Kristen Welker. Kristen Welker should put all of her statements back on. She deleted her entire account. She shouldn't do that. So tomorrow is going to be fascinating. Uh, I, I am sure that it's going to be horrendous. Uh, you know, I, I thought uh, after the first debate that if there was a second debate, even though I told you there wouldn't be, uh, that uh, Trump would actually be in a box because it, the negative reaction to him was so strong that he couldn't come out and be the bully again because that would that would just be horrendous. Obviously, the bully thing didn't work in the first debate. Why would it work in the second debate, especially now that Biden has the, the moral high ground? But it's obvious from Trump's public statements that he's not going to back down now. I mean, he he he's going to let it all out and uh, it's going to be it's going to be horrendous. Uh, it'll probably be entertaining, um, but I don't think it's going to be effective. In fact, it could only uh, exacerbate a bad situation for him. Now, as far as the situation as it is, you know, I am continuing of the belief that Trump is going to lose. But that does not mean I think it's necessarily going to be a blowout. You can make a pretty decent argument as of right now. This thing could be very close and that there could be a lot of very tight states. It's just my opinion that those states are going to fall in the direction of Biden when last time in 2016 they fell in the direction of Trump. There's a lot of polling that is very tight in the swing states, but Trump needs too many of them. Now, I realize and Trump fans will be the first to tell you this. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like 2016 does, John. In fact, Trump has made this argument himself. They said I couldn't win all those states. And guess what? I won them all. Well, the circumstances are vastly different, vastly different than they were in 2016. The geography is not. The geography is almost exactly the same. There are nine states that are basically up for grabs here. Florida, Ohio, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Most of those, in fact, all of those, all of those are states that Trump won in 2016. Those are nine states. In order for him to win this time, he needs to win at least seven of those nine, and two of those seven must be Florida and Ohio. Okay, it's pretty simple. That's the best way for me to break down where we are in this. There are nine states. He must win at least seven of those nine. And of those seven, two must be, must be Florida and Ohio. In those nine states, he's not clearly winning any of them, any of them. So if you just think about this as a mathematical equation, unless the polls are catastrophically off. Now, there, there could be error in the polls. I fully acknowledge that. I'm even willing to accept that there is some error. Let's pretend that all nine of those states, some of whom have Trump losing by a fairly significant margin, you know, five or six points in the upper Midwest, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Let's pretend just for the sake of argument that they're all 50-50 toss-ups, right? That this, these are coin flips. Well, just think about the percentages of a coin flip where you have to get heads or tails, pick your choice, seven out of nine times. And you must, must get heads the first two flips. 
Because if you don't get Florida and you don't get Ohio, it's over. The chances of doing that, and this is like the best scenario for Trump. I'm, I'm giving him all sorts of benefit of the doubt here. To flip that coin seven out of nine times with the first two having to be heads is not impossible, but it's not likely. And it's especially not likely when the weather, which is COVID, is against you. The referees are against you, which is the news media. And, uh, and frankly, the money situation is not being talked about enough. Trump has no money. My God, I get 15 fundraising emails a day from the Trump campaign. <laughs> They're the worst ex-girlfriend of all time. Uh, you, you don't see, and I'm on the, the Biden list as well. They don't send out nearly as many mailings, and they're not nearly as desperate. Biden's got plenty of money, and so they're going to be able to blanket the entire country with their closing argument. The closing argument for Biden, and we saw this in the first game of the World Series last night, was a, a commercial, a nonpartisan commercial narrated by actor Sam Elliott that's talking about bringing America, to get America together, and it's very patriotic. That's a pretty good closing argument. Well, while Trump's talking about Hunter Biden and he's getting in fights with Leslie Stahl in 60 minutes, walking out of interviews and threatening to post uh, that interview online, which, by the way, I think would be fantastic. Uh, and, and he's mocking her for not wearing a mask while being at the White House. That's not a great closing argument, especially when you're losing. It's just not. And so, yes, Trump's crowds are amazing. And I'll tell you, it's remarkable the power that those crowds have, uh, not just on his base, but even people in the media. Two of the people that are trying hardest to convince me that Trump is actually going to win are television news personalities, one of whom is positive Trump is going to win. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And it's mostly because of the crowds. And this person also happened to have had lunch with uh, one of the, the Trump family members recently and members of the campaign, and and they were completely buying into this idea that the crowds are even better than they were in 2016. Our internal polling, our internal polling is great. You know what that reminds me of? Mitt Romney in 2012. Do people not remember that Mitt Romney was going to be the next president of the United States because his crowds at the end were so amazing and the internal polling was so good? Remember that? I do because I don't remember. I don't forget anything. I remember everything. And, and for some reason, somehow, that's just been dropped into the memory hole. The, 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 and we're going to repeat the same thing again? We're going to believe internal polls and, and crowds? How'd that work out for Bernie Sanders? You see Bernie Sanders' crowds during the Democratic primaries? You see what he, he got in Boston Common just before the Massachusetts primary? And then what happened in that? He, didn't, he lost to a guy who didn't even campaign in that race, Joe Biden. And his crowds were astonishing. So people get snowed by, by the crowd, the shiny object. Uh, I, since I have no emotions, I don't get snowed by these things. I am Spock-like. Just give me the data. Give me the logic. Not that logic and data always win, uh, but they usually do. And uh, I still do not see a strong argument that Trump can actually win. He could. I mean, there's a theoretical shot. He could run the table for the second straight time, you know, like a poker player. I mean, and this is part of what's driving the, the Trump fans mentality. They are like a novice poker player who the first two times they went to Vegas, they won big. 
in the Republican nominating process in 2016 and then in the general election. So now they think that they're great poker players and that they understand how <laughs> this game of poker works. And so because they got really lucky a couple of times, now they're expecting that inside straight to be dealt to them whenever they need it. Well, life doesn't work that way. And it's going to require at least as much luck, if not more so, in 2020 as it did in 2016 for Trump to emerge victorious. So while it's theoretically possible, the math is still there. Trump shows some signs of life in places like Pennsylvania where he would have to win. Uh, he's not out of it in any of those nine states that I mentioned. That's important to point out. He is not a thousand percent out of it in any of those nine states. So it is still theoretically possible that if everything broke his way, he could still barely win. There's even a couple of scenarios that make sense. Hold on to your britches that we could have a 269-269 tie, in which case the entire country will burn down. And I mean that sincerely. I don't wish for that, but that's what would happen. And there are a couple of scenarios where we get a 269-269 tie that are not nearly out of the question. So I want to make it clear that my, my confidence that Trump is going to lose is not based in the idea that he's for sure going to get blown out. It's that the mountain he has to climb, the hurdles he has to get over, are just too difficult under these current circumstances. So I still maintain that the chances of this happening are in the 5 to 10% range. Somewhere in that range, depending on what happens tomorrow night, five to 10 percent is where I currently believe the chances are of a Trump victory. That does not mean that we're not going to have a contested election, a close election, one that causes a great deal of controversy and that Trump is able to plausibly claim to his cult that he got robbed, all of which would be terrible for the country. I'm just talking about what the final outcome would be. Now, there is still the possibility, as apparently Rupert Murdoch, the guy who owns Fox News Channel, among other things, believes is going to happen, which is that Trump is going to lose all these closed states and he's going to get blown out. That is possible. I mean, we're on a razor's edge here because we've got those nine states that are all right now very close. Which Do you see them all tipping in the same direction or, do, or is there going to be a split? If there's a split, Biden wins. And statistically, there should be a split. That's even assuming that they really are 50-50 shots, which is being somewhat optimistic from Trump's perspective. So uh, we have another episode next week. We will obviously talk about the debate, and we will give a detailed prediction, a final prediction for what will happen in this election in next week's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for that, and uh, that'll come out next Wednesday. Until then, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this uh, podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual1Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.